Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. That is Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. And I will be reading from the ESV version. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Pictured on the screen is a 38-story skyscraper constructed in the financial district of London at 20 Finchurch Street. Probably not a structure that many of you uh, are, are familiar with, not like the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building or anything like that, but this building has become known commonly as the walkie-talkie because of its unique shape. But what's fascinating about this, and, and being that I have this sermon theme of construction as we study Ezra and Nehemiah, I found myself researching unique architectural and engineering achievements. But this is a bad one. See, this building, which was completed in 2014, actually serves as a concave mirror when the sun is high in the sky. The uh, curvature of the building causes... What's, uh, causes what's known as a solar glare that reflects the sun down on the sidewalk below with temperatures that have been read as high as 243 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, the glare off the curvature of that building while it was being constructed in 2013 allowed a reporter to fry an egg on the sidewalk and partially melted a vehicle. It has now become affectionately known as the Fryscaper. And they've had to install awnings and non-reflective film on the windows to counteract this solar glare problem. The point is that some construction projects face serious crises. There are many, many construction projects that you can go view online and find out how they had an engineering flaw or an architectural design problem that contributed to the, the, a crisis with that building. In terms of this building, its reflective properties caused a problem that had to be dealt with. 
And this morning, as we continue our study of Nehemiah, we come to its fifth chapter, where a crisis ensues. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to examine Nehemiah chapter 5 and see how Nehemiah dealt with the crisis. Because how we deal with crises can have a huge impact on how people view our God. And so this morning, let's start in Nehemiah chapter 5. I want you to read the first five verses with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, we have, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There, there were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now, I'm sure you read that, that section of Scripture, and you're like me, and you're wondering, what's really going on here? What's, what's the overarching problem? And, and I want to expound on that as we get started. I want us to understand what the situation is here in Nehemiah chapter 5. So, back in chapter 4 and verse 22, we find out that Nehemiah ordered that all people that live around Jerusalem move into the city so that they have a, a uh, military presence through the night. In other words, in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 22, when they faced the potential of a physical attack from their opposition, Nehemiah ordered for, that all workers remain in Jerusalem until the wall was completed instead of returning to their towns and villages outside of Jerusalem. And this ended up creating a financial burden on the people. You need to understand something. Based on Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15, the work on the wall was completed in 52 days. That's an amazing amount of time. 52 days during the month of Elul. Now, Elul is the sixth month of the Jewish calendar. That typically corresponds to mid-August, mid-September on our calendar. So we would have just recently exited Elul. But scholars have calculated the exact date of this completion of the walls to coincide with October 2nd of that year. It, it, it happened a little later. Now I want you to think about what's happening during the months of August, September, and October in an agricultural society like they were. That's harvest time. And for an agricultural society, that's income. When you are a, an agricultural-based society, your harvest is coming in. That means your paycheck is coming in. And so what's happening is all these wall workers are being asked by Nehemiah to not return home where their fields and their vineyards are, but stay in the city and help finish the wall. And so people are having to sacrifice their harvest to help finish the wall. And this puts a financial burden on these people. I like the way one commentator explained the problem, particularly Nehemiah's request for all the laborers to remain in Jerusalem. Commentator said that Nehemiah's request caused a shortage of workers for the harvest. The extra labor on the wall no doubt affected the efficiency of the harvest and the income many families normally would have received from working in the harvest. In short, 
the economic situation was more critical because the people depicted so much labor to the wall. See, due to these circumstances, finances were tight. The economy was interrupted. And verse 2 implies that while working on the wall, some were unable to harvest their own grain for their large families. So they were forced to purchase it, and that added expense was economically crippling for them. And then if you look at verses 3 and 4 of Nehemiah chapter 5, it indicates that in order to obtain food and or pay Persian taxes, some people were having to mortgage their real estate holdings. They were having to liquidate the property they've inherited over the years that was their primary means of financial income. And so you have a financial crisis going on, but the biggest issue here comes out in verse 5. The wealthy members of society were loaning money to the poorer members so the poorer members could obtain food and or pay for their taxes. But the wealthy members were engaging in money-leaning practices that were exacerbating the economic hardship of the poor. In particular, they were taking pledges, in other words, collateral, for a repayment on their loans. And this was allowed under Mosaic Law, but it was regulated under Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law would not let you take collateral, would not let you take a pledge that was a daily necessity of survival. So according to Mosaic Law, you could not take someone's millstone as collateral because they needed that to make food. You could not take someone's cloak through the night because they needed that for warmth. So there were restrictions on what you could take as collateral because the overarching theme of Mosaic Law is that you don't take something that they need for survival. Under the circumstances they're facing, they need their land for survival. They need their land for the produce that they're going to eat. They need their land to be able to afford to survive. At other times, these wealthy members of society were taking the children of these families into their service as debt slaves. That means these children would have to work for the creditor until the debt was paid off. This practice also was permitted under Mosaic Law, but there were safeguards that protected the rights of the debtor. Now, normally, it, was, it wasn't always children that would go into debt slavery. It was oftentimes adults. But the plan was this under Mosaic Law. If you are the creditor and you're taking someone as a debt slave, the maximum amount of time they can spend in that service is six years. And while they're in your service paying off their debt, you are to treat them specially. You're not to treat them harshly is what Mosaic Law says. You're not even supposed to treat them as a slave. You're supposed to treat them as part of your family. So there were regulations on how this practice was to be uh, conducted under Mosaic Law. Finally, there were even some of the wealthy who were charging interest on the loans that they meted out. Now, this was expressly forbidden under Mosaic Law, if you were to look at Exodus chapter 22 and verse 25. And so we have some practices that are legal, but they're not necessarily gracious. And we have some practices that are completely illegal, happening here. And it's exacerbating the financial crisis that the people in Jerusalem are facing. So Nehemiah is brought into this situation. 
And within this Jewish community, his chief concern is that the socioeconomic woes that are centered around the impoverished group becoming indebted to the unsympathetic wealthy group, that these woes were going to endanger the peaceful coexistence in the Jewish community, as one commentator said. So when we look at this whole picture and this whole problem that's going on, what can we learn from it? Well, being that it is a crisis they're facing, I think we can learn some things about dealing with crisis. Because guess what? We've all been there. We've all faced some sort of crisis in life, and we haven't always handled it the best way possible. So what can Nehemiah teach us about handling crisis? Let's start with this. Very simple thing. Think before you act. I know I'm not telling you anything new, and and let me tell you this up front. This is going to be an incredibly practical lesson. But one thing Nehemiah demonstrates well for us is that in any time of crisis, you need to think before you act. Often, when, when crises surface, we react emotionally rather than logically. Now, there's nothing wrong with having an emotional reaction to a crisis. Nehemiah's initial response to this crisis was anger. He specifically said in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And before I go any further, it's worth mentioning that anger in and of itself is not condemned in the Bible. It is true that Paul identified outbursts of anger as a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, and he instructed us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 to put away all wrath and anger. But Paul also said, be angry and do not sin in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. And James instructs us to be slow to anger in James chapter 1 and verse 19. And both of those passages imply that there's a form of anger that is not wrong. And this is supported by the fact that Jesus, who knew no sin, looked around at the Pharisees when a man with a withered hand was brought in. He looked around at the Pharisees with anger. Mark chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Anger grieved at their hardness of heart. Even Jesus experienced anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. And Nehemiah was angry here. But even though Nehemiah was angered by this crisis, he did not immediately act on that feeling. Instead, he analyzed the situation. Look again at Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 6 and 7. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. Nehemiah is angry, but Nehemiah did not act solely on his anger. He did not let his emotional reaction dictate his course of action. The New American Standard Version, instead of saying I took counsel with myself, says I thought it over. Nehemiah took the time to consider, to think about, to discover the best course of action. His emotions prompted him to address this crisis, but he did not let his emotions determine how he addressed the crisis. And this isn't the first time that Nehemiah took the time to think before he acted. He did this when he fasted and prayed for four months before he made his request to King Artaxerxes back there in Nehemiah chapter 1. He also took the time to think things through when he waited those three days after arriving in Jerusalem before he pitched his mission and his plan to the residents of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2. 
The point is that Nehemiah, as one author said, serves as an example of one who consider things carefully before acting. And in so doing, he illustrates for us how to employ the biblical tactic of not reacting hastily. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And James instructs us to be quick to listen and slow to speak in James chapter 1 and verse 19. These passages are instructing us to be self-controlled, to be intentional, to even be patient when it comes to how we react, how we respond to crisis. Too often, we, and, and I say we with the emphasis on the first person implication of that word, we take the do not let the sun go down on your anger path. Or we take the leave your gift before the altar approach. And those are biblical approaches to certain situations, but sometimes we take those approaches when we should be taking the diligent planning and slow to speak approach. And so Nehemiah teaches us that when a crisis arises, we need to take time to think before we act so that we don't handle the situation incorrectly, more importantly, so that we don't handle the situation unbiblically. So when you look at Nehemiah's story here in Nehemiah chapter 5, remember that as a child of God, you reflect him in how you handle crisis. So take the time to think before you act. Not only that, when we look at Nehemiah's account here and the situation, he's, the crisis he's facing, we learn that, we, that when it comes to dealing with crisis, attack problem, not the person. I'm certain that many of you, particularly those of you who are in a, in, a, in a marriage, have experienced those times when a crisis arises, when a problem arises, when a conflict arises, and the first thing you start doing is pointing fingers. Start assigning blame. You always do that. You never do that. And we use terminology that indicates we're attacking each other. You ever been there? It's very easy, very easy when conflict arises, when there's a crisis at hand, to start pointing fingers at each other. Nehemiah is dealing with a crisis here that requires confrontation and correction. But I want you to notice how Nehemiah is going to handle that. First, let's notice that he's not afraid to correct. Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 7 also tells us that Nehemiah brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, Nehemiah said, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. And he said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. 
return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Here's what Nehemiah is saying to these wealthy individuals. He's arguing that what they're doing in their financial practices that are hurting their fellow brothers is hypocritical and it's hurtful. It was hypocritical because as Nehemiah pointed out in verse 8, they as a community had brought back Jewish brothers who had been sold to the nations. In other words, these returned exiles had made a special effort to redeem their fellow Jews who had been in debt slavery to the surrounding people. But now the redeemers are functioning as the enslavers because of their financial policies. So their actions are hypocritical because they were doing what they had previously made a concerted effort to undo. But he also says that it was harmful, that their practices were harmful. Here's how it was harmful. He pointed out in verse 9 that their financial practices were preventing the taunts of the nations, or were not preventing the taunts of the nations. In other words, this enslavement between fellow followers of Yahweh gave people who did not follow Yahweh something to criticize about Yahweh. Outsiders may have thought, what kind of God would allow his people to treat each other this way? What kind of God would allow his people to act so inconsiderately and so ungraciously toward one another? I don't want anything to do with that God. Sound familiar? Sometimes the conflicts that arise within the church itself does the worst damage for the reputation of our Lord. Sometimes the way we handle conflict and crisis does more damage for our Lord's reputation than we realize because people see us and see how we act and know that we're here as ambassadors of Christ, reflections of our Lord, image bearers of God, and they go, if that's what our God is like, I want nothing to do with it. That's the argument that Nehemiah was making. And that's very much a pointed finger at these wealthy individuals who are engaging in these practices. And normally when we confront someone like that, don't they get defensive? Isn't that common practice when someone points out your flaw that you get defensive and, and, and you fight back and maybe you start pointing the fingers at them? Nehemiah understands that confrontation and correction are necessary here, but he knows how to diffuse the situation. He was careful to call out this problem in a way that kept it from feeling like a personal attack. He attacked the problem, not the person. And here's how he did that. He admitted his failings. After showing how the nobles and officials contributed to the problem, he pointed his finger at himself and he said this in verse 10. I and my brothers and my servants are lending money. Let us abandon the exacting of interest. Now, Nehemiah, scholars argue that the term translated interest here is not true interest. It's more of the uh, pledge variety, the collateral variety, that Nehemiah was more than likely actually taking pledges on loan or collateral for loans and not exacting interest per se just because of the grammar here. But, Regardless, what Nehemiah is saying is, I'm, what the text is saying is maybe Nehemiah was doing something illegal according to Mosaic law, maybe not. 
At best, he was being inconsiderate, just like the wealthy individuals. He was making the problems more challenging for the impoverished instead of making it easier. Because his solution isn't to offer loans. His solution is to offer gifts. To not expect repayment. To be generous. That's the solution. Nehemiah steps in and says, look, I've been engaging in some of these practices too. I haven't helped the situation. What we all need to do is we all need to check ourselves and realize that what people need right now is not our loans. They need our gifts. They need us to just generously help them through this crisis. The fact that Nehemiah is willing to include himself in the problem kept this from being an attack on people and limited it to an attack on the problem. And this wasn't the first time that Nehemiah pointed the finger at himself. He did this in the prayer that he prayed after he learned about Jerusalem's unfinished state. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 6, he said, We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you when he spoke to God. He also pointed the finger at himself when he presented the, his wall reconstruction plan to the residents of Jerusalem back in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17. Here's a guy who just arrived in the city of Jerusalem and he stands up before the people and he says, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah was never afraid to include himself in the problem and in the solution. He recognized that pointing fingers at others doesn't accomplish a whole lot. And in so doing, he illustrates well for us how to employ the biblical tactic of dealing with the log in your own eye. It's Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which say, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, this passage is often used to argue that we should be careful to not criticize or correct others simply because we too are guilty of sin. What happens is these words of Jesus are often read in light of the adulterous woman episode when Jesus told the Pharisees, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. John chapter 8 and verse 7. We apply the adulterous woman story to the Matthew chapter 7 account with the log and the speck. And we interpret it that, hey, you cannot correct as long as you've got a log. There is credibility to that. But it's worth noting that Jesus isn't saying we're incapable of offering criticism and correction. One of the underlying messages of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 7 about removing the log from your own eye before pointing out the speck in your brother's eyes is that your unwillingness to acknowledge your failings undermines others' willingness to receive your correction. So if we employ this teaching of Jesus correctly when we're dealing with interpersonal crises, then we will have greater credibility in the eyes of those we are helping as long as as we're willing to admit our logs. As one commentator pointed out, Nehemiah's willingness to identify himself as part of the problem gave him the authority 
to say that these inconsiderate practices must stop. So Nehemiah teaches us that when crises, crises arise, we need to attack the problem rather than the people. And one of the best ways you can do that is to be willing to admit your contributions to the problem. Be willing to deal with the log in your own eye. Be willing to acknowledge that as you offer correction or before you offer correction to those who are dealing with specs. It's also worth noting that Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 instructs us that if someone is erring, we should bring them back. That if anyone is caught in any transgression, that we should restore him. But there is a caveat in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 that says we must do it in a spirit of gentleness. I, that verse is telling us that we're capable of correcting others. We're capable of helping people. But there's a modus operandi we have to operate through. Spirit of gentleness. And I don't think a spirit of gentleness can happen without the self-examination that Nehemiah demonstrates. So as we deal with crises, it's going to, when crises come, we're going to have to deal with problems. If we attack the problems rather than the people, it'll go a long, long way. One final thought from the study of Nehemiah chapter 5. When it comes to crises, not only should we think before we act and should we attack the problem rather than the people, but we should practice what we preach. The remaining verses of Nehemiah 5 are kind of like a postscript that the author added at a later date. If you look at verse 14 through 18, Nehemiah shares how he, uh, from the time he was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also perceived in in the work on this wall, or excuse me, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, and he goes on to list all the animals that were prepared for food. And at the end of verse 18, he says, Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. In other words, as governor, Nehemiah was entitled to some perks. He had the right to collect taxes from the people for his own treasury, to pay his own expenses. And apparently that right had been exercised by other officials who preceded him, but Nehemiah explains that he did not exercise that right because he recognized that the financial burden was too heavy on the people. So instead of having the people fit the bill for his expenses, Nehemiah covered them himself. And the point of all this information was for Nehemiah to show that he was willing to practice what he preached. He conducted all of his affairs as governor with integrity so that no accusation of impropriety could be leveled against him. And this was important because he was calling on the people to make sacrifices. He was calling on the wealthy to change their conduct. He was setting a standard in that society and in that culture for right behavior, for blameless action. 
governor, if he wasn't willing to abide by the standards that he was calling on everyone else to, to live by, then he would be a hypocrite. Nothing more than a hypocrite. You know, Jesus criticized the scribes and Pharisees for not practicing what they preach. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 3, he said that because they sit on Moses' seat, which is a reference to the fact that they were teachers of Mosaic law, because they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. He would go on to refer to them as hypocrites in the 13th verse of Matthew 23. And that term, hypocrite, it's a term that originally referred to an actor. Since the stage is technically a fake world and the actor is technically a deceiver playing a part. But the term hypocrite eventually came to refer to any person who was wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something they were not. And if, like the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, you do not practice what you preach, then guess what? You are a hypocrite. And as Christians, we're consistently instructed to eliminate hypocrisy. We're called to love without hypocrisy in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. We're called to pursue the wisdom from above, which lacks hypocrisy in James chapter 3 and verse 17. We're called to rid ourselves of all hypocrisy, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. But the verse that really catches my attention is James chapter 1 and verse 22, where we're told to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That is an anti-hypocrisy policy right there. Do what God's Word says. Don't just hear it. Do it. See, this verse implies that we will put God's Word into practice. And that's the exact opposite of hypocrisy. When I look at Nehemiah and how he handled his affairs and how he was blameless and, 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 and maintained his integrity throughout the entire process of dealing with this particular crisis. He reminds me that I must practice what I preach. And maybe that, that has a greater impact on me than it might you to hear those words simply because I literally preach. But the principle applies to all of us. That what we say should be lived out in what we do. What God's Word says should be lived out in what we do. I want you to consider for a moment right now. Could anybody call you a hypocrite? Could anybody say that you don't practice what you preach? Could anybody say that the way you live Monday through Saturday does not reflect what your presence in the pew right now illustrates? Could anybody call you a hypocrite? Because if you, when it comes to dealing with crises, you better be able to practice what you preach. You better be able to do what you say. You better be able to live out what your presence at worship this morning claims. We all gonna, we're all going to face crises. And what we need to understand is that how we handle a crisis will impact people around us. Because it would tell them whether or not we really believe in our God. And it might just impact whether or not they want to believe in Him too. So how you 
handle and manage crisis can have an impact on someone's salvation. I'm reminded of the Apollo 13 mission, the one made famous by you know, Tom Hanks in Apollo 13, the movie. And you may recall, if you've read about this or seen documentaries on Apollo 13, you may recall this was an ill-fated mission from very early on because of an explosion in, a, in, a hydro, in, in an oxygen tank that took out their service module and greatly affected the command module that they would normally spend most of their time in. Because of that damage, they had to uh, use their lunar module as a lifeboat. Now, I'm using a lot of module terms that may be confusing. Basically, the lunar module was only designed to be on the moon, to be used on the moon. It would eject off and land on the moon and then take them back to their main ship. It wasn't designed to live in in outer space. But due to the damage done to their main spacecraft, they had to survive like they were on a lifeboat inside the lunar module. One of the great problems that they faced is the lunar module was designed only for two occupants for 45 days on the moon. It had an, they had enough oxygen to survive, but the problem they had is they're producing carbon dioxide at the same time. And they have to remove that carbon dioxide from the spacecraft. The lunar module had filters that would do that, but those they had enough filters just for two people for 45 days. Or, for, I keep saying days, 45 hours. Their mission lasted nearly six days to get them home. So they're surviving in this lunar module. But at the same time, they're killing themselves with the byproduct of their breathing. There were extra filters in the main craft, but they weren't designed to fit the lunar module. They were a different shape and a different size. They weren't going to make it back to Earth unless they could do something about the carbon dioxide buildup in the lunar module. Engineers on the ground assembled anything they could find that might be in that spacecraft and came up with that box you see on the screen. They called it the mailbox. They found a way to essentially fit a square peg in a round hole. To make the, 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 they found a way to construct something out of the materials available on the spacecraft that could use the filter from the command module on the lunar module, even though they were a different size and shape. And in so doing, they saved the lives of the astronauts on board. See, the way you handle a crisis might have life and death consequences, spiritually speaking. Maybe for you, or maybe for somebody who observes you. I want to share with you one final verse as we close out today. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, where we're instructed to make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then he goes on to say, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What the author of Hebrews says is that it's your mission, your job, to pursue holiness in every facet of life. And in that, you need to be careful because it could impact your life, could impact those who are observing it. So be aware 
of the influence you have as you go about life and you pursue holiness. Because how you handle life and how you handle the crises that come up in life could have an impact on those who are around you. So the challenge of today is to share some practical advice from the life of Nehemiah so that you and I might handle the crisis situations in our life better than we did last time because we never know who's watching. This morning, if you're here with us and you have not become a child of God, we want to invite you to make that decision because if you will confess your faith that Jesus is the risen Son of God, if you will repent of your sins and if you will be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, then they will be washed away by the blood of Jesus. And you too can be a part of the family of God and on the path that leads to eternal life. If you're here today and you've made that decision, but you find yourself facing a crisis, we encourage you to enlist the help of this family. We encourage you to take the steps that Nehemiah took. Maybe you're here today and you're facing a tremendous crisis regardless of your spiritual status. We want to help. Whatever your need is, we encourage you to come while together we can see. What